Welcome, welcome, welcome to Building the Black Educator Pipeline podcast. You have come to the place where we talk to real people in the real struggle doing the real work. I am your host, Shana Terrell, educator activist dedicated to the lifelong struggle of freedom and liberation for my people. Today, we connect with Dr. Misha Porter, president and CEO of the Bronx Community Foundation and former chancellor of New York Public City Schools. She's linking with us today to discuss the importance of community support and education. Dr. Porter, how are you? I am well. How are you? It's so good to be in company and community with you. Listen, we are excited to have you. You know that you are a friend of the show just because of your work as a warrior in education and, of course, your long-time dedicated friendship with our CEO, Sharif. Yes, my brother, Reef. (laughs) So definitely, definitely super excited to have you on. So generally, we pop off and start off because, you know, I follow your work. I know who you are, but some of our guests may not. But this period, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Share with us, you know, good things, bad things, past, present. Who is Dr. Misha Porter? Who are you? Absolutely. So I am a mother. I am a wife. I'm a sister. I'm a daughter. But most importantly, I'm a disruptor. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. You know, I, I grew up in... Uh, South Jamaica, Queens. I was born in Far Rockaway, moved to South Jamaica, moved to the South Bronx. I'm from the South side of everywhere you ever been. Um, <laughs> and I'm a product of New York City public schools, both as a student, a teacher, an educator, and a parent. And so um, work in public education and spaces is really important to me. I also um, have spent most of my career in education in the Bronx, which is where I live and have raised my family. And so the work in the Bronx, particularly in my current role as the president and CEO of the Bronx Community Foundation, is super important to me about like the work around being in place and in the places that you come from um, and, and staying and thriving in those spaces, which is why I'm excited to talk to you all and excited about the work that you all are doing. Love that. So my listeners already know I am from the South Bronx, South South Bronx. Did I miss so, that? Okay. Okay. Yes. <laughs> from the South Bronx, born and raised. Yes, most definitely. So I always say um, the Bronx made me. No, the Bronx raised me and uh, Philadelphia made me. All um, right. All right. Yes. <laughs> if, you, if you ask Brother Reef, he'll say, she ain't from the Bronx. And that's because I've been in Philly now for about 20 years, but mm-hmm. born and raised uh, South Bronx. So. You have a special place in my heart. Thank for, you. For my brother lives in Philly, so you got a special place in my heart. See the connections, the connections. Mm-hmm. I've been telling people they ain't that different. They're a little the same. <laughs> but talk to us about what inspired you to be an educator. That you've had this long journey, um, and this long road of, on, on education. Talk to us about what inspired you to take that path. Yeah, I I tell people this all the time, and it sound, sound it starts off sounding like really self centered, but it was me right? It was me. It was my brothers and sisters. I come from a really big family. I have 13 brothers and sisters. I have eight brothers. Um, And I'm the only one of us, um, of all of my brothers and sisters that graduated high school in a traditional fashion. Um, Doesn't mean I was like, I was exceptional. It just means that um, I made it through. Um, None of my brothers made it through. um, And none of my sisters made it through traditionally. And what I know from my process of making it through was that 
there weren't, there were very few adults along the way who showed up for me in the way I needed to. There were some, but there were very few. There were very few who saw me or, or saw my experiences and circumstances. You know, Sharif and I share very similar stories. Um, you know, my, my stepfather, Mabu, is Sekou Odinga, um, a, a Black Panther who spent, you know, almost 40 years in prison. And so my life was deeply affected by that. You know, I have two younger brothers who he's their biological father, but all of our Abu, um, who never had the chance to grow up with their father in, in proximity to them. And so, um, you know, the school system didn't recognize my struggles, right? Like it was in really odd instances. When I was in high school, you know, I didn't go to first period for probably the first six months of high school because I had to drop my brothers off at school because my mother had to work two jobs and three jobs and go to school to, to build a life for us. And no one ever asked me until halfway through ninth grade, my English teacher asked me, why was I late every day? And she didn't just ask me why I was late. She said to me that when I was gone, she missed my voice, which just meant so much to me. Um, and, you know, and I told her, I would never have told anyone, right? Like, I, I I don't even like no one even like worried about why I wasn't present until like one teacher, Miss Hulak, my ninth grade English teacher, said to me, I miss you when you're not here. And it made me share with her, like, I'm not not here because at first I was late. Like I was late every day. And then it was like, I'm not even gonna bother to go anymore. Um, and she asked me why, and I told her, and she was like, Listen, I don't care what, what time you come, come. And if you don't make it, I want you to come during your lunch fifth period. And I was willing to give up lunch because she was willing to pour into me. And so my my journey into education was about really like, how can I show up for me before ninth grade, midway through English? How can I show up for me? How can I show up for my brothers? How can I show up for my sisters who people didn't know what was happening in our life and in our family? Um, and And, you know, oftentimes school systems make decisions that, our people are making a, dis a decision to disengage, not that we don't have a choice about disengagement. Yes. And so that, that's really, you know, what guided me in education and what always just really challenged me to work really hard every day to see, to see the babies in front of me. I love that. And shout out to your English teacher. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I'm just thinking about the ways that she probably erased so much shame and so much embarrassment, right? You start off coming late. Then you're like, dang, I'm being disruptive. You have all these own, you know, as a ninth grader that you're dealing with. She like, don't worry about that, sis. We got you. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing um, that she did. And, you know, I just want my educators to listen to that, right? Sometimes we judge and sometimes we make assumptions on, on these young people without knowing their stories, without knowing their lives. Um, so I love that she extended that olive branch out to you. That was beautiful. But yes, the trajectory on to education, right? That you're going to show up. You're going to be there. Mm -hmm, I love mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. So now in your role too, um, you serve as the president and CEO of the Bronx Community Foundation. Tell us a little bit about the work of the Bronx Community yeah. Foundation. So the Bronx Community Foundation is the only, the first and only community foundation solely dedicated to delivering resources to the Bronx. And the idea about around community foundations is really focused on place-based giving and also hyper-focused on um, engaging in participatory grant making. So those who are most proximate to the problems, deciding where resources go. 
And I'll tell you, people ask me, like, what was the deciding factor for me about coming here or even wanting this opportunity? And it really was that when the pandemic hit, I was the executive superintendent of the Bronx. And what I knew, I didn't know what the heck a pandemic was or what it was going to mean. But what I did know was that it was going to be really disruptive in a different way. It was disruptive for all of us, but it was going to be really disruptive to the lives of the children that I was responsible for. And when school systems, mine included, were working on procurement, solving procurement issues so we could get Wi-Fi and devices to families, the Bronx Community Foundation was delivering devices and Wi-Fi to families. And this idea of solving an immediate problem while also dealing with systemic solutions right in in the space of a community foundation was like so intriguing to me because I've worked at the system and I know what it means to interrupt and disrupt the system, but I also know it's hard and sometimes takes a long time. Um, and the, the, you know, I, I think of myself as like the inside outside worker, right? Like I've been inside, I understand the system. I understand how it works. Right. But now I get to step outside and, and, um, really work from outside in the way that you interrupt systems. And to me, that's what the community foundation, the Bronx Community Foundation does. The other part of it is, you know, when we are at our highest professional spaces, we often think about what's the next space. And it, and it isn't always to come back. It is often like, how do you go forward and away from community? And I really want to be an example of like success for me I define very differently. Success for me is about my people. That's how I was raised, right? Like that's how, you know, my mom has three sisters who work together to raise their children together, right? And so if my mom didn't have, my auntie had. My auntie didn't have, my mom had. If we needed a place, we were at aunties. If auntie needed a place, she was with us. In fact, you know what? I was on a call this morning um, on a panel right before this and this young woman um, DM'd me in the Zoom and was like, do you remember my mother? Your mother took us in when I was a little baby. My mom oh is my so God. proud of you. So that's how I was raised, right? I was raised in the spirit of give back and pull in. And so um, success for me is defined very differently than it is for many people. And success for me is about building community, being in community, um, leading from within, and, and honestly, bringing my power and privilege back to the place that made me. Because sometimes, right, like we, you know, we, we shout out the communities that made us, but do we stay in them and do we invest in them and do we give back to them what they gave to us? And so that's, that's why I am where I am. And that's why this work is important to me. It is hard work. It is different work, right? But it yes. is heart work. Yes. Well, you out here serving with the spirit of serving leadership. Mm -hmm. That is that is how you it sounds like how you were raised, what you were brought up in and what you were taught to do. And I'm just listening and to have you serve in the place where you grew up, where you were raised and where you lived is major. A lot of times I know we were talking about me living in Philly. I always felt guilty. Like I didn't I didn't go back to the Bronx, but I used to laugh, though, because my friends used to say, why do you continue to want to like working in the communities in Philly that you work in? I'm like, cause these are my folk. Like <laughs> these are my folk. If I can't be where I originally was with my folks, I'm gonna find my folk out here. You in Philly, and this Bronx, is where... girl. You in Philly, <laughs> yes. Bronx. Yes. 
Yes. And this is where I'm going to be of service to the people, the people who need me most, the people who look like me, the people that I can identify with, the people Mm -hmm. who I feel safe with. And people never understand that either. Like, oh, you feel safe in the hood? Very safe. Extremely safe, to be quite honest. It's when I'm out of the hood that I'm a little (laughs) like, wait a minute. Keep my head. I don't know you. (laughs) Yes. Keep my head on the swivel, okay? I don't know you. I don't know your behaviors. I don't know your actions. Like, uh uh-uh. I'm uncomfortable now. But always, always go back. Um, can you explain the notion real quick um, of place-based? Because I think that if you're not inside of a place-based serving organization, a lot of people don't know what that means. Yeah, place-based is really about like really digging in and diving in in a space and place. And there's a lot of work in, in philanthropy, a lot of work in um, nonprofit spaces that really focus on, on building a place, the place and and I, you know, when I think about place-based um, investment, I also think about proximate leaders, right? Like those of the community, from the community who have experienced a problem, a situation. Like I, when you ask me about like why in education, I also have experienced all of the things that the young people I served and the, the, the community that I serve has experienced, right? Like we've been, I've been every label, right? I've been a student in temporary housing, right? Like we've been food insecure, right? Like we've been healthcare insecure. And so when I think about, you know, when I first was, before I started this job, a month or two before I started, we had a huge fire in the Bronx. Um, And I remember when that fire happened and and the foundation was able to galvanize over a hundred organizations to respond. Um, one of the things I thought about was this wasn't just a fire. This is a problem of poverty because I've also been in a place where we had no heat and had to use space heaters and electric heaters. Um, We've also dried our clothes over the stove, right? We've also boiled water to, you know, wash. And so those are problems of poverty that, you know, it really made me think about, um, you know, it is the other side of the problem is about adequate housing with adequate heat, with adequate hot water, um, because we just don't want our babies to be cold, right? Like we don't want, we want our babies to be clean. We want them to have clean clothes so they show up in schools. And so place spaces are about really, really think about what, what's the systemic issues in a place that you can solve. It's about the leaders who are of that place and space, who are proximate to the problems, have experience with them. And aren't thinking about the problem from a varying perspective, but understand the problem from a very systemic level. Love that. Yes. Thank you for that. So one would ask, I know I'm asking, so how does your presence, and not you, Misha, but the Bronx Community Foundation enhance the quality of life for the people, especially the students yeah. in, in the South Bronx? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, first of all, I think we have two two amazing opportunities. One, to bring new resources that have never existed in this borough, right? Like, and so we are a foundation, we are a grant maker, we are a fundraiser, we are about identifying new resources to solve today's problems. Um, the other thing is about the voice of the people and the power of the people, which I know you all know well, right? Yes. Um, one of the things I think about, particularly about the Bronx, that I think is so powerful is Two presidents have come to the Bronx, you know, in the 70s and 80s when the Bronx was burning and and left and and didn't do a thing. But it was always the people. 
It was always the people who rose up and said, you know what, we're going to rebuild our buildings. We're going to rebuild our communities. And, you know, we have the, the, the power of the foundation is the investment to be able to do those things and seeking out investment um, so that the voice of the people with solutions to a problem, right, can be financially supported and grounded because, you know, the revolution ain't free. It ain't. I mean, people think it is, but it's the revolution not. is not free. No, right? no form of organizing and strategizing it is, is not ever free. free. It takes resources. It takes strategy. Right. And so it is not free. And so that's what we are here to do. We are here to bring resources to solve problems that affect young people, older adults, um, you know, those of us in the middle but also to, to help people see this place as beautiful, right? Like this place is the birthplace of hip hop, right? The birthplace <laughs> of movements, right? Um, you know, like people are really excited about the Bronx in this moment of the 50th anniversary of hip hop. Like we did yes. that. Like we transformed yes. a culture, a genre of music. We created a, a style. We created fashion. What y'all going to give us for that? Movement. You can't just have right. it. Like what's going to be the investment as a result of what we've given this world? Not... Not New York City, not the United States of America, but this world has benefited what grew out of 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx. You owe us. We want yes. our reparations. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you better speak that. Thank you for shouting that out, too. 50th anniversary um, of hip hop and the birthplace of the Bronx. But I love how you put that. Where's our reparations for building that and gifting that beautiful thing to the world, mm-hmm. right? It's such an expansive movement. So you're not just talking about the rap and the lyrics. Like you said, the fashion, the style, the culture, uh, which continues to evolve, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing. entrepreneurship. Like- the opportunity for young Black people mm-hmm. to make a living and own things for themselves. Absolutely. Yeah, we are reparations at. Speak that. Talk that, Misha, okay? <laughs> we will not just do for that, most certainly. Well, I love that. Um, thinking about place based and uh Bronx Community Foundation. So you come with a super unique skill set. Um, and the reason why I'm saying this because sometimes you have people who are in the nonprofit space and they just focus on nonprofit. Mm-hmm. They only know business, they only know philanthropy. Then you have people who do education who just know schools, education, curriculum, you know, academia. You have the combination of both, which puts you in a very unique spot to also be able to have a very large influence in the community and a very large kind of stage to support our students. What are some strategies that you can share, like for local organizations who do place-based work that can help engage and partner with schools? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, that's something that I really intend to tackle. Um, in this role. And so if folks are thinking about it, you know, particularly in the Bronx, like come see me. I, I really want to think about that because, you know, we we don't honor those community-based organizations, nonprofits that really are the backbone of community. I, I see just because like you just talked about like my story, like I see school as the center of community, but there's Absolutely. an ecosystem around it. And so for nonprofits that want to get closer to school and community, you know, I was a principal. It's my favorite job. It really was. Everybody knows that. Ah. I mean, like I'm a, my heart principles every day. Um, the first step is to build, be in relationship and in community with the principal. Or if there's a parent leadership group that can bring you in, I think that's the way. But I also would not, I don't want to put that charge only on 
nonprofits, I want to put that charge on leaders and school systems to say, mm-hmm. how are you partnering up? When we're thinking about, um, I was at the Hip Hop Ed Conference this weekend, shout out to the homies, Dr. Ajapong and Chris Emden and the whole team at Hip Hop Ed for putting that together. But one of the things that, um, you know, came up there was this, this idea of like the community educator, right? Like th- those are the folks who are in nonprofits. Um, but those are also the folks who are really of community, right? Those are the folks who have relationship with people in the community. And so for schools, when you're trying to figure out how to connect with families and with community, those are the people you need to be connected to because those are the people who know what's happening on the block, in the hood, right? In building blah, 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 right? And so I also would say, right, like, yes, you have to find, uh, you know, principals who understand the importance of those relationships, right? Connect with the parent leaders from school. But I also want to not put all of the weight on the nonprofit um, leadership. And I want to challenge principals and school systems to really think about if you are really thinking about how you wrap around a community, um, wrap around children, how do you create opportunities to build those bridges? In New York City, you have a really strong community schools model. But it's only in certain schools. And it's my belief that like every school can build that by finding a nonprofit community educator organization to partner with. Um, to, to It also does another thing that I think is important. A lot of our educators um, are not from our community. Right. They're not. And so sometimes they enter not understanding the community and those voices. Right. Help you center community and become a part of it. Because I don't believe in, um, you know, I, nobody's going to save my, nobody's going to save us. Like we don't, we don't need saviors in our schools and in our communities. We don't. That's right. We need people who see our beauty, who see um, the glory, who see our diversity, who see our uniqueness, right? Yes. Who see that part of our community and know how to lift it up right? In a real way and see yourself as a value add to that and how you add to Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Um, and yes. so, you know, I, you know, I'd say, right, like find a great principal who, who, you know, is like-minded and connect, uh, identify parent leaders and leaders in the community. But I also want to challenge school systems to think about how are you doing that outreach also and, and how beneficial it is to expanding your school community to bring those partnerships in. Yes. And I love that you put the onus back on schools. Of course, we have a bunch of educated educators that are listeners. Um, and tell, don't be mad at me because I know y'all doing a lot of work, educated people. I know like they become, they'll come for me and they'll be like, sis, we tired. I know you are. And I thank you. I'm also a public school parent. So don't be, don't be mad at me. I, I get it. Yeah, no, I don't think anybody will be mad <laughs> because what you're naming is an easier way to yes. help support children, right? You're not saying, I need you to do more. You're presenting a solution to an issue. And it's really about, it takes a village, right? Mm-hmm. How are we wrapping around these children and serving a holistic child? I think what happens is educators become tired because kids come in. Like you said, they are the center of the community. So kids come in, families come in with a number of issues. And schools feel like it's the expectations for me to solve it, but you shouldn't have to solve it. You're just the central hub of it all. Mm-hmm. So everything comes crashing down mm-hmm. in your building. Mm-hmm. Everything kids are with you eight, nine hours of the day. You're going to see all the dirty laundry, right? Like it's going to happen. But what you need is help. What you need is resources. What you need is place-based initiatives to help really 
solve, especially the the schools that are dead in the community, meaning that the only kids who go to your particular school or the walking distance That's in right. that neighborhood. That's right. You have such an opportunity um, to be of service to the people in that neighborhood, to the people, to their families, um, and solve many problems. Um, if people join together and partner together to work together to really help support students. Um, so I love that you did not leave the onus just on nonprofits, that you also flipped it around on schools because schools have to be willing to open their doors That's right. um, and, and partner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And schools have to be able to know how to partner. Yep. I think one of the struggles that I've seen in education is like you get a principal that's like, oh, yeah, fine, they can come in, but you're not invested in whatever strategies oh, this no. organization is bringing. Absolutely. Right? And it has to be a partnership. Like I, I've had nonprofits and community organizations in my school. And for me, it's like it's an extension of us. You're part of the team. Like we're working together. It's not about what you do on that part of the day and what I do about this part of the day. Part of the day. The, the partnership is really about exp- the center of school. The most important thing that happens in school is what happens between our babies and teachers in classrooms. And everything is supposed to enhance that. What happens Mm -hmm. after school, before school, breakfast, lunch, if we put a laundry in the school, like everything that we do is supposed to enhance that experience of learning for young people. Yes. Yes. So I heard you mention um, that your favorite role, because you've held several roles, right, within the education sector. Right. And feel free to list them. But you, you know, you've been all up and down around town, child, mm-hmm. in terms of education. Now, you mentioned your favorite role was to be a principal. Yep. Why? Because the principal role is the role where you have the greatest impact on young people and teachers. Right. Mm. A great principal. I'm not saying I was great, but I wasn't so bad. Um, I'm pretty good, in fact. Um, but a great okay. All right, you better give yourself these flowers. Shout yourself out. Brag on yourself. No, but like you know, the principal is the like can be the protector of the system outside and the protector of the system inside, right? And so I remember when I was principal, and like when I was chancellor, I would tell principals, "Y'all know when not to listen to me. Like I don't take it personal. Like this work is too important. It ain't about me." And so, um, you know, a principal knows when they're getting a directive Mm -hmm. that is not going to move the agenda for what their community and what their children need. Now, I think, though, we have to be careful with that because, see, people take that and they'll be like, yeah, I could do. That's right. Because this system's working against me. But I just want to make sure your kids are reading and writing and learning math and, and, and proficient in the areas in which we know it's important for them to be proficient. So like, don't take the Misha advice if that's not happening for you in your school. Yes. If that's not yes. happening for you in your school, then like, let's, let's, let's shoulder up and figure out how to make that happen. But for folks who know how to make that happen, make that magic happen in classrooms because they're leveraging partnerships, because they're growing and building amazing teachers, because they're centering young people, centering our babies every single day. And as a result, like you're seeing them learn and grow and go off to amazing schools and universities and live amazing lives. I I was a principal for, um, gosh, I I was in my school. So you talked about the roles. I was a community coordinator. I worked for a nonprofit first that started the school. I was the internship coordinator. I was a teacher. I was an assistant principal and I was the principal. So I had every job in my school that you could have. Mm, um, mm, mm. And then I was a superintendent, executive superintendent, and chancellor. So I've worked in every level of the system. 
Yes. And so I also have always thought about the role that I played before and what I would have needed to be really good in that space. So when I was a principal and assistant principal, I thought about what teachers needed from me because my direct sphere of influence were the adults in the building. And yes. what you do for adults, you do in service of, 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 of young people, of our babies. And so that's why, because I just had the joy of having that role where my impact was on adults and adult behaviors in service of young people. And I got to see, I was a principal for 11 years. I've seen my, my, my babies are doing amazing things in this world. When I tell you, like, I'm telling you, they're amazing. They're on the other side of the world, um, in business in education in, in, um, law enforcement in the legal profession. I was the principal of the Bronx School for Law, Government, and Justice, right? Mm. Like they are doing amazing things in this world and, you know, and we stay connected. And it's because we, they know we believed in them um, and, and we believe that our work, and this is right, like in suburban communities, right? Like there's a understanding of who you work for. In urban communities, yes. there isn't always the understanding of who you work for. And we recognized every day that we existed and had jobs and worked because of the young people that walked in outdoors in every day. And we were accountable and responsible to them and their families. Yes, yes. Again, there goes that little glimpse of servant leadership, honey. I am of service to these young people. I'm employed because of these young people. Like I am here for them. But I love that that you say um, out of all of the roles you had, that principal um, was your favorite. I talked to Sharif a lot. He he loved he loved being a principal. Mm-hmm. It was one of the hardest things he said he did to have to step away from the principalship. Like love, love, love. So hard. Oh my gosh. Love being a principal. Yeah, and I like that the the dual impact that you have because one would think. I love working with children. Um, I'm not always a fan of adults, but I love <laughs> working with children. But to have that impact and influence over both so that the school um, can run well and the children can get what they need, because you already mentioned one of the most important factors are a child's relationship with their teacher in that classroom. So to be able to have impact and influence over both is is big. But you also mentioned like what teachers need. So, you know, our current climate right now is insane with teacher um, attrition. Like they're just it's probably at an all time high right now. People are like deuces, like mm-hmm. I'm out, like I'm good. Now, even prior to this epidemic happening with teachers leaving the classroom, we already knew for black teachers, yeah. that thing was like a rotating um, door. They in for three, they out like that. That was kind of the baseline. But how can we do a better job of supporting our teachers, especially the black ones? Well, one, we have to really ensure that they see themselves in space, right? Mm. So I, I actually, I think about this a lot because I think about, you know, we, we, we drive recruitment efforts around, we want to increase the number of black and brown teachers in our schools, um, but we don't go to the places where they are and welcome them in because they're actually already in our schools and we talked about them. Yes. They're our nonprofit leaders. They're our community educators, right? And so what made me successful was when people saw me and supported me and invested in me. And I think if we want to keep teachers and particularly teachers of color, um, we have to think about um, the, 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 
you know, the racist structures that exist in systems that keep them out, right? Um, that don't allow them to show up as their, their authentic selves in school. Um, we have to think about the ways in which we provide wraparound supports for teachers. We have to think about, um, you know, experiences and learnings and leanings that keep them current and fresh and alive, right? We have to let them go out and learn and experience other places and see other places and things and be in partnership. Um, you know, we also have to think about policy and practice together, right? Like this test culture um, does not bode well to increase folks' commitment to wanting to be in profession. And I talked about proficiency rates. I think it's important that we can ensure that what's supposed to happen in school and what happens between the kids and teachers in classrooms and that our babies are learning, that that's important. But you got to develop people to that. When I was a teacher, and this is no fault to the system, it's just the reality. My first year teaching, it was like, go forth and be great. I don't think I was great. For, I don't think I was great for that first group. I apologize to y'all. I love y'all. Y'all were my favorites, but I wasn't ready to go forth and be great. My undergraduate degree in English didn't prepare me to go forth and be great. Mm. And so, what does day to day support? So when I was when I became a principal, um, you know, like there's all of the like system requirements of new teacher and mentors and blah blah blah. But I made sure every teacher had a buddy, a buddy just to be like, when I get paid. Like, where do I get paper from? Um, mm. If I have a problem, like people say there's no such thing as a dumb question. Well, there are such things as dumb questions. You know why? Because there are questions that are dumb that people are like, I can't believe you asked that. You <laughs> always need a person, a real good friend to ask a dumb question that ain't going to judge you, that might laugh at you a little bit, but laugh with you and love and help you find the answer. And we have to create spaces where people aren't afraid to struggle and learn and lean into that struggle and that that struggle isn't um, seen as failure, but as an opportunity to learn and to grow. Mm, I love that. I love that. He <laughs> said, need somebody like, girl, why you ask that question? <laughs> like, what is happening here? But again, the, the things that you're naming and the one that continues to stick, that stuck out in my mind. So I already knew when you said, we have to go to places where black teachers are. Mm -hmm. Somebody listened like, well, where they at? But they, they're inside your building. They're inside um, your building. They're the lowest paid people in your building because mm, you have mm, to mm. see them to see their power and potential and create yes. a pathway to the classroom for them. That's yes. what we're going to do. We're going to do that together, my sister. We're going to do it in the Bronx. Tell Sharif, you know I ain't playing. <laughs> <laughs> Sharif, you heard, you heard Misha, right? She said the center need to come up in the Bronx. You mm -hmm. heard her. You heard mm -hmm. her. But absolutely, you are correct. Um and seeing the power in people beyond, I guess, what people would call, what people think or define as a traditional teacher. Mm -hmm. And I think that's hard for, for folks to do. And I've always said this in being in education. There are certain things that you can't teach. I can teach you, right, content mastery, right? Like, that's what you go to school for. I can teach you to teach English. I can teach you to teach math. It's really hard to teach you the skill to connect with that's another right. human being. That's like that's right. that's a really hard skill to actually teach mm -hmm. you how to do that. And I remember, especially when I when I was in cultural roles, people would be like, oh, "Assistant Principal Terrell, Dean Terrell, can you? How do you connect with the kids?" And I'm like, mm, "Like it's natural, right? Like they're like you need to like write some of this stuff down, and then you know you start getting all the soft language, like the connectedness and 
I'm like, listen, they just people to me. Like, mm-hmm. it's nothing that I can tell you unless you see them in, through the same lens that yeah. I see them. Mm-hmm. They're kids. Um, they're people. They're humans. They have feelings. They have problems. They have lives. Like, um, and again, there is a certain connectedness that exists there. Like, I do look at them and see brothers, sisters, yeah. cousins, and a, a sense of familiarity that is very hard to teach if you're not from or of that that yeah. community. And one of the um, things I used to do when I was a principal was I, I would ask every teacher to make sure there was something about them that was personal, that was displayed. It didn't have to be hyper-personal. Yes. But like, you know, teachers would put up the pennants from the college that they went to. I had a teacher who was a runner who would have his, one of those, I forgot what they're called, but the numbers, they're called something, but I don't run, uh-huh. so I don't know what the numbers are. Oh, girl. Uh, but <laughs> yes. he would have those things. Up. But something that invited young people to connect with you, right? Like, even if yes. you didn't know how to connect with them, invite them to connect with you, to ask you a question, to want to know more. Even if it was, you know, some people love dogs and have pictures of their dogs. Some people have pictures of their family. Some people weren't comfortable with that. But what's the thing? What's the part of you? Because that's what connection is about. It's about being comfortable sharing a part of yourself. Because I'm not going to, you know, pe- kids don't learn from people they don't like. And they really don't learn from people they don't connect to. And so it's really important that you figure out, like, what's your authentic way of, my, uh, clearly our authentic way of connecting is different and similar, right? Like, we are like, you know, we, we connect, we connect on music, we connect on community, we connect on location, right? Like we, our way of connecting is different. That's okay. When I go in other places, I don't, I don't know y'all people. I'm gonna try though. This is me. Um, but it really is about young people seeing a part of you and knowing you. Uh, and there are a lot of different ways that you can do that. And yeah, it is, there's a level of authenticity that's required, but there are small moves that you can make. Um, to build connections and relationships, even a little thing like you, and you probably know this, being willing to, you know, you, you're from the South Bronx, but being willing to walk to the bodega at lunch and get a chopped cheese and be like, I came back with my chopped cheese. And, and they like, see you in there. They see you eating what they eat. You Absolutely. know what a chopped cheese is? Cheese is. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> It is the little things as being from the Bronx or again, whatever community you in engaging in the things that the kids do. But like you said, it's a small, it's a simple things and it's the willingness. I used to push teachers a lot to live outside of their own comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not about you at some times per se, right? There are the things that you named prior to this that they need support in their development, their teaching, their growth as professionals. But in order to be of service to children, there are certain things you want. I know you don't like, you might not like to sing and dance. And then what's your niche? How can they see you as a full human? Because that's important to them. And not this robotic person that comes in to just talks to me for however many minutes out of the day. And I know nothing about you. And kids is newsy, right? Oh, like they oh want to know. Oh my God, they so nosy. <laughs> they want to know everything. They want to know all the business. I mean, I want to know too. So I'm with them. <laughs> Miss you married, miss you got kids, miss you got a dog. Where mm-hmm. you live, right? You they rich? know that thing. I'm rich. <laughs> What's wrong with you? What kind of car you got? <laughs> yes. All of the things they want to know. And then when you think about it, like, shoot, you know everything about them. Exactly. <laughs> so give me a little piece of you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other biggest part in building connecting connections with kids. One thing that I will always make sure to do for kids, especially young ladies compliments 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 Mm -hmm. 
just, oh, your hair look cute today. You did something mm-hmm, different. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like your shoes. Go, yes. girl, like that. Oh, what kind of lip gloss is that? Where you got that from? Again, even if I'm not interested, yep. I'm interested because that's important for them to feel seen. That's super important. You're so right. It's the, When I was a principal, every morning we stood at the door and greeted kids as they came in. And I remember one of my assistant principals was like, we don't have time for this. Like, we need to meet. We need to... And I'm like, this is the most important thing we can do. And and you know what that did? And I'll tell you a mistake I made too. But what it did was every morning I would see kids and I would know if they were okay. Like I would yes. look at them and I would be like, Angie, what's wrong? You don't look like yourself. You usually are smiling in the morning, right? Or, you know, Osvaldo, why, why, why are you so excited today? What's going on? Because mm-hmm. we need yes. to calm you a little bit down, my brother. <laughs> um, but as a principal, right, I remember one of the ladies who worked in a cafeteria came to me one day and was like, Miss Porter, I walk in every day and you don't speak to me because I was hyper focused on seeing kids walk in. And I was like, she was like, you don't say hi to me in the morning. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I was like, you know what? I'm so hyper-focused on like kids that I, you know, kind of miss you. And so now I'm aware of it, right? Because as the principal, it, obviously I'm at the door for kids, but like the adults need me to see them too. And that's my lesson. And, and, you know, I think the lesson for leaders in this is that you get lessons from all over the place. That was my amazing cook from the cafeteria, Miss Hayes, who was like Miss Porter. And you know what? It didn't matter. Like, I'm not too big for Miss Hayes to tell me I don't see her. I want you to know I see you because you're part of the story, right? Like, if you don't get down there and make that farina, because she made that good, 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 good (laughs) farina in the winter. And the kids yes. look forward to it, as did Coming I. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so, she a part of yeah, the village. Part of the she village. part of the village and needs to be valued um, in that way. Um, I think another u- unique thing about you that I would love for you to talk more about is um, you also came into this work in people of service as, as an organizer. Mm-hmm. And again, that's another unique skill, right? That everybody doesn't have. How do you feel like your experience as an organizer has made you a better leader and a better educator? Mm. Well, you know, it's what's really powerful is um, my school grew out of a process, right? So my school, Bronx School for Law, Government, and Justice, I was part of a youth group in Highbridge in the Bronx called Take Charge, Be Somebody. And we heard, and I was like 19 years old, we heard about this new courthouse that was going to be built in the Bronx on 161st street between Sherman and Grant. And we activated our youth group to say, we don't want a courthouse. We don't want more jails. We, we, we want more schools. And out of that, you know, um, activation, right? Like out of that activism, I grew a school, right? All of us grew a school and it also made it, made me own the school in a different way to this day, right? Like I will, I still, I've never missed a graduation. Um, I will always support that school and the teachers and the principal who was my assistant principal um, and, and the community also, this is the other thing because it grew out of community. It didn't grow out of an idea that the central office of the New York city department of education had, it grew out of a group of young people and community organizers who said, if you're going to build a courthouse in this community, you know what you're going to do? 
You're going to build a school, the Bronx School for Law, Government, and Justice, where young people will learn the inner workings of the court system by by making it their classrooms, not by going through the system, right? And so the community, let me tell you this, and it's little things and big things, never been graffiti on that building, ever. The, the young people in that school wear uniforms and that's evolved over time, right? Like with the times to think about the way we are enacting, um, you know, kind of white supremacy practices in our schools and, and how we want to change that. Um, but the community around the school, right? Like the court officers who worked at the court knew our kids, they knew our babies, they knew them by dress. And so they watched out for them. And so there was a level of community connectedness and cover that was not only around this building, but around giving safe passage to young people, um, but around making sure that when they were outside, they were outside, they were safe and they were good. And so I think when a school grows out of a community in that way, then the community takes care of it and regards it differently. It's not like- It's a different investment. It's a different level of investment for sure. Different level of investment. But the idea um, is- so intriguing and I, I love it like if you're going to build this courthouse these young people are going to learn how to navigate this system because again even if these young people are taught how to navigate this system appropriately uh without bias and learn mm-hmm. how to you know stand up for themselves how for freedom and justice they're going to be the young people who populate that courtroom in a very different way in a couple of years they will be your lawyers they will be your judges they will be your clerks um so when you know and hence running a system that's for the people and, and owned by the people. I, I think that was a beautiful concept. Um, another thing that you name, I want want listeners to keep hearing this. You and a couple other people who have come on this podcast have named these like organizations that you were a part of as young people who gave you opportunity and that gave you agency and empowerment to feel like you could do something and be somebody. And that kind of like carried on throughout yeah. your trajectory, trajectory for professionalism. So in your careers and stuff. So the fact that you were a part of a group um, that really encouraged you to use your voice, shout out to whoever that was in the community making that happen for young well, people. I'm going to shout them out for you. I'm going to shout out who is no longer on this earth, but his spirit lives on. Um, Robert A. Williams, Bob Williams, who was the founder, president and CEO of the Sports Foundation, who we, we worked for as youth organizers. I had a job as a youth organizer at 17 years old. And I remember um, Doug Williams was Bob's cousin and he was like my direct supervisor. And when they, when we started talking about the courthouse, I remember that block, right? There used to be an ice house. There was a 99 cent store. There was, I, there was a labor Sherman daycare center. All of these things were there. And he was like, there's, he said to me, you have to see beyond what's there to a future that like you, you got to imagine differently. And that struck me because 10 years later, the courthouse was erected. Our school was erected. And there were these wholly new institutions that our voice was a part of framing. If if young people, if community members hadn't activated, the, the location that my school sits on would have been part of the courthouse. But we fought to get the project scaled back, the courthouse project scaled back, to make sure there was space for a school. That's powerful. Very powerful. Extremely dope. That's why I said, man, shout out, because that's big. And I think that, I always say this, people overlook the power of youth. People Mm -hmm. overlook the power of of young people. And they're the ones who have the power and have the stamina, right? 
Because what you got to lose at 17? Um, word. Nothing. And I <laughs> right? Young, right? I want young people, like, you, you might not see the thing today because like we are very like a generation of like instantaneous need it now we need it now need to see it now but like for generations beyond me young people yes. walked through a school that i was a part of ensuring that it was erected period yeah that's powerful and it's just a wild concept to for somebody to say to you like I know what you see right now, mm-hmm. but I need you to think beyond this. I need you to think 10, 15 years down the line mm-hmm. what this could be and how it's going to benefit your community. Like, that's a wild concept. Like, we don't dream those impossible dreams, mm-hmm. which really are, in actuality, they're possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but thinking outside the box like that and encouraging young people to do that, because again, the sustainability of that, you were part of that project when you were 17, mm-hmm. wound up working there. In vast many different positions, becoming the principal, um, and then joining the larger ecosystem that that school was a part of, and influencing an entire Bronx community. Like that's amazing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's amazing. But it started with that seed right there. Somebody telling you, imagine yeah. what this could be. That that's a beautiful thing. Um. So what I also want to get into right now, because I think it's important, because again, seats you sat in, the knowledge you have, what do you think are the top three things that are plaguing mm-hmm. education right now? Mm-hmm. And what immediate changes could be made that would like drastically change the lives of, of, of Black students in our community? I think first we're trying to go back, right? Like we, we want like pre-pandemic school back um, mm. and and. You know, I just want to challenge us that pre-pandemic school didn't work for our kids. It wasn't right. The system of schooling didn't work. And so I think that there's this really deep desire to get back to what was normal and normal wasn't good. Um, and 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 so I just I, I want to challenge us to think about what we learned in the pandemic, um, leveraging new technologies and new and exciting and interesting ways when we had to shift the system, in fact, New York City, well, school's closed today because it's a, a professional day, but because of the air quality, um, schools are completely closed and the system is going remote, right? So we had to shift a system to remote learning, and yet we are running away from the technologies that we use mm. in that space. So I think, one, I think we have to leverage new technologies. We can't be afraid of technology. The things that we're most scared of are AI, chat GBT, like that kids are going to use it wrong, but other kids are going to use it and we're not going to say anything about it. We need to make sure we are preparing our young people to use those technologies to become more empowered thinkers, um, to challenge this, this. I think the other part of it is like this, this narrative about woke education and woke politics that people don't even understand that is wanting to I see a sada behind you that wants to ban what our kids read and experience and who they see as powerful I think that um, another thing that's super important in education is that we have um, you know content and text that's reflective and honestly I don't think it's most important for kids of color I think it's super important for kids of color so like don't you know, I don't take it lightly, but I think it's more important for kids outside of our communities to normalize difference in a country that's trying to villainize difference, right? Yes. And so yes. technology, content that is uh, reflective of across community and reflects differences and reflects diversity. 
And I, like, I know, I, and I also think the last thing I'll say is this, is that we have to recognize real, right? Like every system in this country is responding to the NAEP, right? Oh, they can't read. Oh, they can't do math. Who was surprised by the results of the NAEP when we think about what our young people went through? And, you know, if we only dive into content and not what you and I spend a lot of time here talking about, connection, and really addressing the deep social emotional learning needs that young people have, right? And, and, and ensuring that we have real wraparound services in place across schools. School's a different place than it was. We got to remember the, the fundamental of schooling was not designed for black and brown children. It was designed for white children. And even that system was fractured and flawed for white children. And so now we have to think about the system our young people need need today. And that system needs a a, a set of wraparound services that include a lot of the things we talked about. Connection, community, right? Partnership in community. And so those are the things I would say, like not to be afraid of new technologies, um, to, to leverage uh, the relationships within and around communities and to ensure that there's a diversity of thought and content across classrooms and across school systems so that the young people coming behind us can challenge this woke politic agenda that, that different sides are arguing with, like we value and recognize difference as powerful to build in a strong community and a strong country and a strong culture. Absolutely. And it is about the value of difference, but it's about the value of me. Mm, what you're calling a woke, mm. a woke agenda is like mm-hmm. you're trying to erase that's me. Right. And that's not okay. Um, so definitely using uh, voices to to stand up against that. But even as we talk about all these issues and talk about things that we could change drastically for children, I'm always left with this question because the answer to this is like, it depends on who you talk to. Mm-hmm. Who is accountable for the state of education for our children? Mm. Where does that accountability lie? Who does it fall on? It really does depend on who you talk to. Mm-hmm. But you've held like, and I'm asking you this, right? Because you have you have been the you have been the chancellor, right? Like of a district. It you know Nick, Nikki Giovanni says this is my favorite quote. I didn't even know he was going here, but you know it, it stays close to me. Um, it's not about who you attend school with; it's about who controls the schools that you attend, mm-hmm. right? And and so my first part of my answer is all of us. And when I mean say all of us, I mean teachers and leaders and community folks, right? Like that, that we see school as the center of community and really wrap ourselves around it. But there are people in control and there are people in power and there are decision makers who impact policy. And so the folks who make the, somebody had to make a decision whether school would be open or closed today. It wasn't me, right? Like it wasn't you and it wasn't the parents, Somebody made that decision. And so there are people in power across systems, New, New Jersey closed, right? Like every state, you know, many of the systems that are affected by what's happening in the air quality in, 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 the, in the tri-state area decided to close. They're decision makers. And the decision makers have to decide if they want to have jobs or they want to change lives, right? And, um, you know, I think we cannot compromise our integrity to keep a job in service of failing our children and it turns in, cha- in service of failing our communities, in service of failing our schools, in service of failing our teachers and not showing up for them in the way that we need to. And so, you know, the answer is all of us, but those in control, there are people in control and in power 
um, you, you, we, because I was one of them, we carry that load and we need to carry it very, very seriously. Yes. And I love the comment about just being accountable and not for the sake of keeping your job because people are walking in spaces and places and doing it every day, making decisions to keep their jobs at the failure of thousands, thousands, sometimes millions of children. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Big question right here before we roll out. What is in, in your, in your lens, how do you feel like we can achieve educational equity in this country? How can we do that? How do we leverage that? I think that we have to let the diverse set of voices um, in the room around education. And I think the most important voice, and you know, we, I don't think we, we, we didn't spend enough time on it, but is the voice of student, the voice of learner, right? We have to listen to what young people are saying to us, us about what they need, about what they want. When they are coming out of a time and coming back to school, when they spent two years being able to mute the teacher, disconnect, cut off the camera, you better believe that you better censor the voices of babies and, and begin to think about how we design a school system that's in service of them. And I think they're the most important group to listen to and to hear from. Yes, I love that. And we we definitely, we, I mean, I always tell my guests who are amazing, like yourself, that, hey, you got to come back for another show. All right. Um, we can definitely <laughs> talk about the power of student voice. Yes. Uh and how, again, that is the missing link. They they don't, as you were talking about people in control, they don't have, have a seat at the table to make decisions for things that impact them and affect them. And I talk about this all the time when it comes to woke policy. How are people in control making decisions about like my life and my future, right? You'll be dead and gone uh, when these policies are enacted That's and the right. future of America pans out 10 to 20 years from now because of decisions that you made about curriculum. This is actually my life. This is how it's going to affect me and my children to come. How are you able to make decisions about education in that way? You've gotten your education. Mm -hmm. You were allowed to learn what you needed to learn to be able to say the woke agenda will not live. How do you know that? Right. I even know what a woke agenda is because you got an education that was able to be diverse enough for you to be able to build comparisons. Why would you deny me that right? How do you have the right to deny me that right? So you are absolutely dead on when you talk about the voice of children not being omitted from the conversation and needed to be added, value added uh, to achieve educational equity. Before we get out of here, I want to give you the floor to thank some black teachers. We mm. always give our guests the floor to thank some black teachers. It could be whoever. I'm going to thank my mama, Miss Odinga, my first black teacher. Yes. Um, I'm going to thank my auntie, Aunt Brenda, uh, Miss Jackson, my second black teacher. I'm going to thank Miss Beckford, even though she was mean to me, my fifth and sixth <laughs> black teacher. But I know it was for a reason, Miss Beckford. And we just I just talked to that whole class and we remember Miss Beckford didn't play. I want to thank Miss Jackson, my assistant principal in elementary school, Miss Gordon, my principal in elementary school. Um, you know, I want to thank, uh, you know, Miss Monroe, the math teacher at my school where I was principal, but being such an amazing black teacher and doing so many powerful things with math. I want to thank Miss Turnbull, who's now a principal, who is a science teacher at my school, who always made sure that kids who nobody thought could do biology really did it and did it exceptionally well. So those are the black teachers I want to thank and lift up for pouring into me and pouring into the baby. Oh, and I want to thank Miss Simpson, 
my black teacher, who's a former student of mine, who is now a teacher um, in Yonkers Public Schools, because that's my baby girl, and I love her. Yes, look at that pipeline piping, like Mm -hmm. loving it. Your student is now a teacher. Listen, Dr. Porter, we thank you so much for joining us today on Building the Black Educator Pipeline. Like super, super, super happy that you were able to join us today. Any final words? Where can folks and how can folks support the Bronx Community Foundation? Yes, you thank you. You can go on the Bronx um, Foundation, thebronx.org. Um, you should also t- check us out on the in, on Instagram. We actually are, because we talked about the 50th anniversary of hip hop. We um have some promo tickets uh for a very reduced price for the hip-hop anniversary, August 11th at Yankee Stadium. So if you check out our Instagram page today, the pre-sale is today. Um, But also, if your heart is into giving, go on our page and donate because this is a philanthropic organization and it is about place-based giving and pouring into community. And so I just thank you. I thank you for the space and time. It's been such a joy to talk with you. Um, and I thank you all for creating this space for black teachers and for us to really center the importance of black teachers in our schools and in our systems and that we provide care for them. For sure. Shout out to all my co-conspirators out there listening to this episode, right? You are listening to Building the Black Educator Pipeline. It is a show hosted by the Center for Black Educator Development with the help of our partners at Bright Beam. Subscribe wherever you like and listen to your favorite podcast. We'll see you here next time, next episode. Peace, y'all.